two. Hello, Legionnaires. This is Max Liao from Legion of Myth. Can you believe this is our 100th live stream episode? It's nearly two years worth of live streams. I know the calendar doesn't lie, but wow, I can tell you it really doesn't feel like two years since we started all of this. From our foundings in 2003 to now, it's very surreal to me how far we've come and how much Legion of Myth has changed as a community and an organization. For some perspective, Legion of Myth was originally founded in June 2003 as a guild for that little-known game, uh, some of you may have heard of it, uh, World of Warcraft. While most prepared for World of Warcraft, some others including Rooks, Nafsib, Kodos, myself, jump-started what became Legion of Myth's first MMORPG adventure in Star Wars Galaxies. Even Elgarian, who was known as Aja back then, was part of that first Star Wars Galaxies guild. Welcome back, Aja. Elgarian. By early 2006, Legion of Myth had grown to over 400 registered members, with about 100 of them active in any given night in EverQuest 2, Star Wars Galaxies, World of Warcraft. However, by the end of 2006, due to waning popularity of the various games we played, nothing else to grab our interest, our numbers dwindled to the point where Legion of Myth officially shut its doors as an active MMORPG guild, until such time as we could find some other game to interest us again. In August 2008, after much debate and Nafsib's insistence, we reincarnated Legion of Myth as Legion of Myth 2.0. In this iteration, we focused on becoming an online gamer community alongside of being an MMORPG guild. While we enjoyed the moderate success in Warhammer Online and greater success in Star Wars The Old Republic, where Legion of Myth really shined was in our contests and written reviews. All told, Legion of Myth gave out over $3,000 in prizes to members and contest winners in the form of cash, Steam games, memorabilia, and even two full computer systems. In 2014, Legion of Myth once again rebranded itself into what you see now, a community of older, more casual gamer nerds who enjoy and discuss comics, anime, video games, and tabletop role-playing games. We are older now, with careers, families, obligations, and we may not have the skills we once had in the most modern video games, but the passion we have for our various nerd-oriented hobbies has remained, and in many cases has grown. What you see in this Legion of Myth weekly livestream is literally an endeavor of love. We love the games we play, the comics we read, and the anime we watch. And while I, Max Liao, speaking only for myself, can be a bit introverted or antisocial in terms of talking to people I don't know, we all really do love you as a community. Whether you're a quiet lurker, someone who occasionally joins, or an active supporter, we cannot thank you enough for your support and interest. You are Legionnaires. All right, all right. <laughs> important to me, I'm sure this history lesson is boring for you, so let me wrap this up. Looking to the future, we are going to continue our labor of love by creating more gaming videos, streaming more of our online antics, and of course, opining about all types of nerd topics via the weekly live stream. In time, we hope to bring back our quarterly contests, as well as adding even more fun and features for the community. Please, spread the word. Like, follow, subscribe. Let us know what you think on our various social media outlets. Finally, Legion of Myth owes a debt of gratitude to, and thanks to all members, past and present. 
As the primary contributor, I'm very well aware of the time, money, and effort that has been put into Legion of Myth by its founders, its members, past and present. Through the years, we have had some remarkably supportive folks join our ranks, folks who give more than they receive from the organization. While there's no practical way I can thank every individual who has ever contributed or supported to Legion of Myth, I'd be remiss if I did not give a most sincere thank you to the following people. First, while they're long gone in terms of Legion of Myth, I want to thank Valier and Silvanoshi, whose initial ideas formed what would become known eventually as Legion of Myth. Next, I need to thank Alakai and Petey Pock for their early growth of our community by leading our most successful Legion of Myth MMORPG guilds, both of which were coincidentally in World of Warcraft. Of course, I must thank Garthon, Heathen Dog, and Elgarion, the guys you're going to be listening to in a few minutes, for greatly improving and taking on the challenge of this Legion Myth livestream. These three have great chemistry and make for an exciting and interesting show. There are two others who, to me, deserve an incredible amount of gratitude and thanks for the contributions to Legion of Myth over the years. First is Nafsid, an original founder who, while a silent partner now, has been here for Legion of Myth since our founding. Always one to think outside the box, Nafsid constantly brainstormed and pushed the envelope, and often pushed my buttons as well, in order to grow and support Legion of Myth. While you may not see him directly, behind the scenes he continues to be a source of ideas, my counterbalance, and a needed voice of reason. Just don't tell him I admitted to that. My final special thank goes to Liliandra, an original founder and the only Legion of Myth member to have more tenure than me by one silly little day. Whether in the past as Rooks or currently as Liliandra, she always sought new ways to engage our community. As the idea person, Liliandra came up with many of the concepts of the more popular lore, contests, and community events performed by Legion of Myth. In fact, this Legion of Myth weekly live stream, of which we are now celebrating our 100th episode, was her idea. Her past time and monetary contributions over the years cannot be overstated. Lastly, I want to thank you, every one of you, our Legionnaires, past, present, and future, members, supporters, fans of Legion of Myth. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, enough of my blathering. Let's get you to the fun. While I cannot be here in person, I'm crazily excited for this episode, not only because it's our 100th, but also because of our special guest who's keeping alive my all-time, without a doubt or exception, favorite tabletop RPG, Earthon. So carry on, Legionnaires, and take it away, Garthon. Thank you. Good evening, everyone, welcome to this, the Legion of Myth live stream. I am your host, Alex Garthon Marsh. With me is Brett Heathendog Grissomer, Rick Elgarian Hart, and our special guest, who's probably wondering why he's here, is Josh Lore Merchant Harrison from Fasta Games. Say hello, everyone. Hello, internets. Hi there. I don't know what happened. I was, like, going out to just pick up a six-pack, and these guys jumped out of a van. Well, the free candy written on the side should have been a warning. Yeah. 
Yeah, it really was. I mean, we, we, we borrowed that from the other guy. <laughs> you didn't want to meet the other guy. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Good for everyone to be here. This is an exciting episode for us. Our 100th episode just finished with the greetings from Max Liao. Uh, and you know, I don't know how to follow that up, but we're going to try. Everyone ready for this? We're ready. Let's do it. All right. In this episode, in this episode we're going to have an interview with uh, Josh Harrison about Earth Dawn and other things going on at Fast Games. Uh, he'll then hang out with us if he feels like it. Uh, we got Elgarian's Bargument. This time, we're going to talk about the dawn of his nerdification and an early video game that made a big influence on him. We're also going to go with Heathen Dog's Heathen Dogma and his anime foundations. Which animes early in his young, skullful of mush childhood warped him into the respectable individual he is today? And finally, a comic origin story where Garth will go over three books. Well... Two of them are series that highly influenced his comic passion today. Then anything go rolling around the brainstems. See how long this takes this week. Is everyone up for this? I'm ready to go, man. Let's do it. Let's Another go. origin story? And there are too many comic book origin stories. That's why I had to make the joke of Garthon's origin story. <laughs> well, the actual Garthon, not that anyone cares. Um, well, it's somewhat pertinent. The name Garthon actually came from a, my uh, favorite Earthdawn character. Back in a, the yep. Earth Dawn game where uh, most of us met. That's right, Josh. We met. We all met playing. Well, no, our first game was Rifts. But the, I'm sorry. The, the next game. <laughs> it only the, lasted a couple sessions, really. Yeah, it lasted a couple sessions. But the, for like a year and after that, it was just Earth Dawn, straight Earth Dawn the whole time. Every Saturday. And Garthon was my orc troubadour. Ancient, cool. emaciated orc troubadour. May he roll in his grave. He never died, actually. He was so old, he had to die right now. Well, that was why he's the Garth on the Death Seeker, because you never find what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's, let's go. All right. First, the disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode are solely the opinions of the individual commentator and are not representative of the entire Legion of Myth organization. While we make an effort to provide a family-friendly atmosphere, there may be the occasional use of foul or offensive language. But probably not. Thank you for your understanding and continued viewership. As always, you want to check us out. Uh, you like, follow, subscribe, legionmyth.tv.com. Uh, on our YouTube channel, uh, Legion of Myth, just look us up. We're there. We got hours and hours, hundreds, literally hundreds of hours of video, uh, mainly of video game playthroughs. Um, very interesting stuff going on there. My current favorite series are, of course, when Max is getting annihilated. I mean, victoriously playing Mechware Online. And when Heathen Dog is playing the exciting adventures of Fast McCool in Star Trek Online. Also, check out our Twitch streams, twitch.tv slash Legion of Myth. We have a Twitch stream almost every day of the week. Check them out. Facebook, Messenger, Twitter, we got it all. And we love you all. So, all right, let's, uh, I lost my slide. I had a slide for this. Uh, but let's talk. Uh, so, Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Spent most of the day elbow deep, as I usually am on the weekends in... Manuscript revisions. Uh, for the uh, for new supplements coming out for Earthdawn or various FASA games? Yes, indeed. Uh, I'm working on sort of the final batch of revisions for uh, the Trevar source book coming very soon, as soon as I get it done. That is nice. Pretty, that is really exciting, actually. Wait, wait, wait but, but before we get in Earthdawn, I really want to ask you, what was the first game you ever played? First tabletop game. Tabletop RPG? Oh, yeah. 
would be classic uh, red box Dave Menser era Dungeons and Dragons. Nice. Yeah, nice. I gotta give the uh, internet fist bump to that. The first game I played was actually literally I still own it. Red box D and D. No, my mine was a little later. It was Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Gosh, that had to, what did I do? That had to be eighty-three or eighty-four. I first played that. Yeah, that's about the that's about the year that um, that I first started. Yep, when it came with the dice, came in the box with the crayon. You had to color in the numbers. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> I still have my D twenty from that set. The white one. The orange one. It was orange. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, the orange die. Mine was orange. And it's so old, and the ch- corners are all chipped off, and it rolls in an inordinate amount of 20s. So I only pull it out, because I know it's got to be biased with all the chips out of it. But if things are going bad, I pull out old number one and count on that 20. Great. All right, uh, Josh, go ahead and tell us uh, tell us a, a little bit about uh, Earth on 4th Edition, and then we'll, uh, we'll ask you some, uh, some touching questions on the subject. Good touching or bad touching? We're not going to know until you find. <laughs> um, so, where to begin? I have been a fan of Earth Dawn since pretty much it came out. I picked up the uh, first edition hardcover Christmas of '93, um, and not long after that, got into sort of the early days of the internet and and online fan groups and was part of the old Earth Dawn mailing list uh, email group um, and ran a, a couple of um, really successful long-term games up here in, in my local stomping grounds up in Maine. Uh, and then when FASA stopped producing, when they kind of shuttered their doors at the end of the, of the previous century. That was a sad which, time, really. Which feels odd to say, but it's the truth. Um there I sort of got was involved as part of the fan effort to try and keep things going. Um, ended up playtesting and and somewhat consulting for second edition. And then around the time that Red Brick came out with the classic edition, did some consulting and uh, contributed some stuff to that. Uh, and took a little break during sort of the third edition era while I had very young children and no time to do anything. Um, and then eh, about three years ago um, was basically approached by then sort of uh, lead developer, lead developer, uh, James Sutton, uh, who was looking to kind of get out of the business uh, and more or less kind of stealth offered me the position uh, at uh, Gen Con in, I think it was 20, let's see, it would have been 2014, 2013, one or the other, I forget exactly now, but um, decided to take the leap and uh, see what I could do to to steer the game forward and, and decided that uh, I wanted to tackle a new edition, fool that I was. Oh, that's pretty fantastic. I mean, actually... Um... Max Leo and I were actually playtesters for Earth on Second Edition as well. Yeah, I've, I've I've heard that. I actually talked to Max briefly at Gen Con. I think it was this past year. Yeah, um, I was there too. Yeah, we briefly spoke just a little bit. And I, we I was very to, busy. Yeah, you were. We we kind of wanted to get an interview with you that day, but 
Um, our recording equipment was, of course, not working, and you were busy as heck anyway. But so that's really interesting that we actually have that commonality, because uh, second had its flaws. It was a good try, but I think it certainly had its flaws. Yeah, um, I, I think it, it was a case of some really enthusiastic people who, while they were cool people, um, I haven't really talked to any of them that I know in ages, um, but you know, I think they maybe got in a little bit over their head, not to say that I haven't, <laughs> um, but um, I, I think that there were, there were some decisions made that, you know, for, for good or bad. I mean, they, they certainly made an effort and um, that's all the, that the rest of us can really do. Yeah. And uh, that, that was actually one of, one of my questions. Uh, uh, when, when you took over, and uh, and uh, you took over and Redbrick. I don't. I don't want to say became FASA Games, but people thought it was just a rebranding, and uh, all all the same leadership that except for you that that was there it was just going to fail them all over again. Uh, the, this this was in 2014. This isn't now. What what? How have you distanced yourself from from the uh, from the uh, uh, failures that have been seen from Redbrick Games to FASA Games now? Man, that's a little harsh. No, nope, that's that's fair. Um, that was one of the things that I kind of set out as the ground rules, as, as sort of like if I'm going to be doing this, I'm going to be doing it on on my terms. Um, I think part of that, the the bigger part of that, and this is sort of in the wake of everything that went on in the tail end of the Red Brick era, um, both with Earth Dawn and um, to a certain extent. Uh, Fading Suns, which was kind of the, the, the another license that they had, and they both kind of had a, a big thing, um, was was a lack of transparency, um, and but even more than that, a perception, rightly or wrongly, from the fan base that any kind of criticism or negative attention was going to be shut down. Well, I will and, say that. I mean, I, it's probably not here or there, but from my experience playtesting on the boards they set up and everything, uh, anytime, it seemed to me that when I would start disagreeing with some of the things that are going on, they, it did feel like that, honestly, to me. And that's the old team. That's not, that's not what's happening now. Nowadays, you guys are great, but yeah, I, I, that, you know, that I, did happen to me. Yeah, I mean, cer certainly, you know, obviously decisions that we made uh, that, that I have made and with fourth edition and the direction that we're kind of going and things that we're exploring are not necessarily to everyone's taste. I completely recognize that not every game works for everyone, even different editions of games, whatever, um, which is, you know, have civil disagreements and you don't like what's going on. That's fine. Yeah. That's the whole nature of the game here. I mean, yeah, there, I mean there's right. always going to be editions of your favorite games you don't like. I mean, just look at the controversy with fourth edition D and D, or even third edition. A lot of people. Point, yeah, three through three point five helped a little bit, but uh, yeah. But then yeah, you so, also people are incredibly passionate about those editions as well. Sorry, yeah, I'll let you absolutely. Know. And I and I and I recognize that a lot of that is driven by love of the game. I mean, Earth Dawn is in some ways one of the unsung heroes of the fantasy RPG genre. Um, and the, the fans of Earth Dawn, because I am one of them, are incredibly passionate and love the game and want to see it do well and, you know, have it get the attention it deserves. Um, 
and and that's cool and you know i've i've had discussions with you know on on the board there with max you know he didn't like certain things and i recognize that and and have sort of put forward our thinking and he you know recognizes that as you know again civil disagreement between people and as opposed to um you know those haters out there that really just want to um take a dump all over everything as opposed to looking to have some kind of reasoned interaction speaking of taking a dump on everything no i'm kidding i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> no i can do that uh that, that, that I, you you mentioned max and that actually brings me we had the same first question and the, the only reason i skipped my second question was the, the rebranding one because it kind of came up but uh talent max man what happened not sure what you mean well in uh in, in first edition uh they had uh talent max where right. uh, if, if, if you had if you had a certain level of ability in in a, in a talent, you could you could finagle it, kind of like uh, play around the music and, and okay, okay, get a cool, so, interesting so effect. If I understand, the question is the question is right now for fourth edition, where are they? Yes, they will be in the companion. Outstanding, which is the book after Trevar. Yeah, much love. Great, great. That that was that was a big one. Uh, another one was talent crises. Uh, uh, Max and I really loved the idea that if you didn't. If you didn't uh, focus your magic with with the mindset of your discipline, it started to fail. Now, that is also that in the companion. Mission. Excellent, outstanding! Yeah. Wow, this is. I mean, I didn't mean for this to be like right over the plate here. Come on. Oh man. yeah, no. I mean, basically, the 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 fourth edition player's guide and game master's guide are five hundred pages, five hundred and twelve pages each, and there is a lot of stuff that is crammed into those but there is no way that we could fit everything into it. And so, you know, there's the third core book, the companion, which is going to have all the high circle stuff and sure. the enchanting rules and the knacks and talent crises and all those sort of more advanced options that are not quite as necessary to play the game. Right. Right. Yeah. You, you can get the ground running without them. Exactly, and I get it. And and if if you uh, if you advance, if your if your party advances slowly, then you may not even be able to use a lot of talent acts until the book comes out. So that's great too. Yep. All right. Well, I only got one more question, and this 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 one is uh, is dear to me because I loved the the uh, the official story arc of first edition, right up to the war, and and then when the war ended. What what is what is the future? You know what what how is the story going to progress? What what what's going to happen to 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 the brand new king? Uh, what's what what's what's going to happen to to Vivane and all that all the all that stuff that at the end of the war it was all in turmoil? What's going on? Okay, so if people are fans of Earthdawn but are not aware of kind of what happened with Fourth Edition, just to kind of give a quick background here, one of the decisions that I made with the when deciding to do the fourth edition was we're going to advance the timeline. Like the war has been looming. The war was looming when FASA stopped production in 99. Right. Living room games did their own version of it for second edition, which I have some problems with. Uh, I have reviews online of the product that sum that up pretty nicely. Okay. So, so <laughs> where, where are you, where are you going to splice into this? Um, so what, so basically I jumped the timeline ahead seven years and said, okay, 
the war has happened in the history chapter of the GM's guide. I basically lay out the, the broad picture events of the war, which for the most part kind of follow the broad outline that FASA had in mind when they stopped production and kind of follows the broad outlines that Living Room Games did. But as a initial product, the war was very daunting to me. And I wanted to have fourth edition be a sort of a clean break where we could just, let's establish a new status quo. Let's not necessarily require everybody to read all of the prior source books in order to understand everything that was going on. We may very well in the future kind of go back and do a book focused on adventuring in the war, but let's kind of get the broad strokes of that story out, pick up here in a new situation that changes things around a little bit, looking more at the Denerastis as kind of the big overarching bad guys as opposed to the Therans. Um, Thrall has pulled inward a little bit because of political turmoil as a result of Nedin's death in the war um, and things like that, just to kind of make fourth edition be a really good place for new people to jump in or for people who might not have been playing Earth Dawn for 15 or 20 years, you know, who only knew it from first edition, to jump in and not necessarily need to get all caught up on backstory. Make it a little bit less daunting in, in that regard. Well, I, I am glad that, uh, that, you, that you laid out this, the story in the, in the uh, Game Master's Guide, because, uh, you know, you said that you, you might go back and have, have adventuring in the war, but that is kind of far-fetched. That, that's only if you're wildly successful, because go, go, going back instead of going forward is usually the wrong move in any game development. So I understand if you don't do that, but that, that you laid out the story is pretty much good enough for me. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's, it's more that one of the weaknesses of the... Living Room Games Bar Save at War supplement is that while it followed a lot of the broad strokes, it felt kind of on rails. That is that your player character group, if they were going through it, would largely be going along, seeing these events happen, but not having a lot of influence over them. And that's something that is kind of a problem with any meta plot heavy game. True. Yeah. I mean, the, the uh, player characters can't be allowed to to uh, move away from the main story arc or else it'll be ruined right uh, yeah un unless basically they are doing the things that result in exactly what you're shooting for you know that that can that can be a problem and so it requires a fairly delicate balancing act to have a group to have an adventure especially a sort of an epic adventure that doesn't remove the ability of the uh, to borrow term from Brandon Sanderson and his ilk to to protag, um, you know, to do the things that they need to do or want to do to pursue their own agendas and goals, and also have an overarching story that is going to carry forward into future supplements and the future of the setting overall. Okay, that's great. Uh, I got I have one more question. This one's actually from Bob. Uh, he has a question for you in chat. Uh, what is your most annoying player? A min-maxer, number cruncher, talent combo abuser, whatever. What, what, when, when, when you're playtesting Earthdawn 4th edition and this, this guy shows up, there's always one guy in a group. That, okay, that well, let's, let's, let's break this down into two different parts. When playtesting, 
I actually like having min-max number crunchers because they're the ones who will stress test the system and find where things are broken. You so, want those people. So are you that's inviting right. Heathen Dog right now? But that that's different from if I'm like running my own game at home. Okay, okay. Let let let's do that. Uh, running running a, a game at home. What 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 is the what is the worst kind of player you get? Like I said, from the from the ones up there, uh, min maxer, number cruncher, uh, talent combo abuser, stuff like that. Which, the which one that has always bugged me are the ones from people who think they have found the the uber combo, and I've never really run into one in Earth Dawn, um, but um, but think that they have found sort of like the one ultimate. Uh, game breaker that's not necessarily as cool as they think it is what i'm what i'm immediately coming to mind is when i was running a, a third edition D D game there was a rogue in the party who was trying to pull the um ring of invisibility to sneak attack like every round kind of thing yeah that doesn't actually work but they try it well right exactly it, it doesn't work the way that they thought it did and there are a lot of opponents that are not subject to it and things like that but yeah it's i don't know someone who isn't going along with the spirit of the game that's being played and that can vary from campaign to campaign like if we're running a very sort of dark intense you know emotionally like a lot of gravitas involved um having someone who is going to be you know cuckoo for cocoa puffs um you know that kind of throws off the whole mood or if you're doing a much more sort of light-hearted adventure um thing and someone is being like all angsty and, and, and yeah 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 man you, you need to go you need to go go play vampire man this is <laughs> well i mean it it has its place but you know it it's like one of the the guys that that was sort of in my, my gaming circles back in the late nineties and, and so forth was always, always had the tendency of when the group was making characters for a game would make one that just didn't really make sense with the rest of it. Like a call of Cthulhu game where you have the professor and the socialite and you know, the, that sort of thing. And then this third character is an immigrant Chinese dock worker. Like there is nothing that would connect that character <laughs> with the others as interesting a character concept as it might be. You're, they're not going to hang out yeah. for, for any reason whatsoever. You know, and That's I mean, sometimes, sometimes it can work. I have a, I have a gaming buddy of mine who often plays kind of offbeat characters, but always ends up contributing in an interesting way, like in a Call of Cthulhu game, not the same one, but in a Call of Cthulhu game, decided that he was going to play like a 10-year-old boy. And so that motivated the other characters to like try and protect him from what was going on. And he had kind of an excuse to get into things and, you know, it just, it worked out. So. Okay, that's great. And that, that's all for me, unless, uh, unless Rick and, uh, and Al have something. I am, I am sated. Now, well, that was easy. <laughs> what do you think <laughs> differentiates 4th edition Earth Dawn from the other editions to make it the premier edition of the game? I wrote it. Okay, good enough. Boom! <laughs> no. drop, drop the mic. No, really, like, drop, drop leave. Mic. Interview over. <laughs> um, Josh, out. <laughs> no, the... It's... It's tough to say. I mean, it, it is very... It is still, I think, recognizable as Earth Dawn. Um, there are some aspects of it that 
have been kind of incorporated with an eye towards smoothing or easing the, the play experience for both players and game masters. Um, and a lot of things that maybe don't initially seem to be particularly remarkable, but have a lot of repercussions kind of echoing lightly throughout different aspects of the system. Um, you know, like going, for example, uh, the, the new way that successes are calculated. Um, in, in prior editions, you had this basically, you know, full page chart that showed the statistical differences success for, levels, right. yeah, success, you know, average, yeah. good, excellent, I love whatever. That. It's, I love it's, that. I, I was going to nerd rage on you, but I decided not to, but then yeah. you brought it up. Well, you know, I mean, look, I wrote an article back in 96 or 97 or something like that in, in the early days of the internet, basically doing a statistical analysis of the step system and explaining why they went to D20 plus D4 instead of 2D12. Like, I, I understand the math behind the system and why they chose to do what they did. That's interesting because we actually number crunched that ourselves uh, when we were all playing together. And it, it actually did make a lot more sense to what they did. So sorry, I just want to interject that. Yeah, no, I mean it it if if you look at the numbers and you and you kind of look at the progression through those kind of low two die steps into the upper two die steps and into three dice, it actually kind of makes sense if you realize, oh, what they're trying to do is broken not by the the higher end of that, but by the middle section because there isn't any better option. Um, and the, the success table and the numbers on that are actually calculated to basically give you results on certain percentages if you are rolling the same die step as the target number. Like, the math behind the system is, the original system is beautiful. The problem is, and this is something that, that has kind of, you know, popped up time and again in, in Earth on Fandom, is that having that chart that you need to refer to any time that you're dealing with something that, that might have additional successes. Um, like there are some sort of mental shortcuts, like for low level, lower target numbers early on, the excellent success, which is the armor defeating hit, which everybody is really most concerned with, tends to be about double the target number, but that stops being the case not too quickly. Um, basically decided, you know what, Let's just go and see what happens if instead of having a cap of three extra successes or four successes, you know, with the extraordinary, what happens if we go with just every five above the target number generates an extra success and see what we can do with that? Um, and because wait, wait, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, an extra success for the effect test. Um, well, for what for whatever success. Okay, or damage or effect test or whatever. Yeah, I mean, not, right, like, basically, you know, for, with, like, if you were rolling your melee weapons in first edition, if you rolled an excellent success, it would completely ignore the target's armor. Right. Um, you know, and that was, like, for a target number nine, it was an 18. For a target number 10, I think it was, like, a 21, or I forget the exact numbers now off the top of my head, but somewhere in that, you know, vicinity. Right. Um, and, but... But let's go with and say, okay, if your target number is a 10, you'll get your basic, your basic success, your first success at 10, your second at 15, your third at 20, and go on from there. And 
you know, because that makes it easier sort of on the fly to calculate the number of successes that you get, as opposed to needing to look it up on a chart if you're dealing with a target number that you don't deal with often enough to have it memorized. Okay, I get it. This is for speed of play. I get it. Yeah, again, yeah. you know, it, we are sacrificing a little bit of the mathematical elegance of the system to make it a little bit easier in terms of at the table play for, you know, for, for players and GMs. Well, that certainly is, I mean, honestly, the way most games are going now. That's, it seems to be like a necessary refinement. Because uh, like the old Grognard system of numbers, 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 like, especially like the older 80s or like first edition Dungeons and Dragons, for God's sake, um, that was basically a, essentially was a war game where you're going to make your characters. You know, and the original edition of AD&D didn't even let you know your target numbers or what you had to roll. That was in the DM book, and the players just had to roll blindly and give total numbers. Right. Now, uh, the, the, the reason I love the success level so much is very personal to me. I understand where you're coming from, speed of play, uh, easier easier to uh, just do the, do the numbers in your head. I get it. Uh, I, I think Al is going to remember this. Uh, my, my first character was a cavalryman. He didn't last past second circle, but he died heroically. Do you remember this, Al? Vaguely. I know you were always very... Oh, it's... That's that, when yeah, you, my, you had my, my D10 wouldn't stop blowing up. Yeah. Just wouldn't stop. I, I was on top of this flying creature. I forget what it was. And it was going to uh, fly close to the ground, flip over, and scrape me off. Well, I used uh, I used my uh, my my talent for uh, uh, riding animals. One, I used half magic test to to get to get him to to flip over at the wrong moment, and I put my sword hilt to my chest, blade to his back, and when he tried to scrape me off, he actually dug into himself, and uh, we rolled, and uh, John was the game master, um, and he kept he kept rolling. He rolled the damage for me. He, he gave me extra damage for for the weight of the creature, and uh, but that didn't matter because uh, I, I rolled to hit. And I just kept rolling a 10. One, one of my 10 sided, I just kept rolling 10, 10. I got something like a 78 on that. And so it was armor defeating. And so uh, I, I got bonuses for damage because of the weight of the creature. And it all but killed it. It has something like, you know, 10, 10 left until, until unconsciousness at that point. So I, and oh, oh, I died spectacularly. Oh, it was, there was no bringing me back. I was, I was chunky salsa across the, very across the care floor. It was very impressive. My, my mount was just inconsolable. But uh, everyone else is like, yeah, you really did it. Oh, but you're now your salsa, so we can't actually thank you. But, yeah, I had fun doing that. Even though I died, it was a great time, and I owe it all to the armor-defeating hit. So that's why, personally, well, I'm here's So here's the thing. In 4th edition, here's how so, – so basically, the – so the way that worked in 1st edition, right, you get your really high result. But let's say for the sake of argument here, your – the target number to hit the creature was a 10, right? So you need an 18 to get the armor-defeating hit. At that point, on the attack roll, everything over an 18 doesn't do you anything. Actually, there, there was a house rule that if you get an extraordinary, you get an extra D4. Okay, but, but I mean, there, there, was, there was sort of a cap to where that runs out, right? Sure. In 4th edition, so let's say that the, that the creatures, again, he's going with, we're going with a 10, your attack roll, because of exploding dice or whatever, ends up being a 70, you know, 78, okay? 
because of the way the revised system works, and this is kind of plays into the to the armor defeating hits, right? Armor defeating hit is all or nothing. It either doesn't get any armor or it, it you know, and so boom, you overcome all the armor. Because you got a 78 over a 10, so at that point you're looking at uh, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, 60, 65, 70, 75. So that's that's uh, 13 asterisk successes, if I'm counting correctly. Each now, of those, is, is that a... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Each of those asterisk successes adds a plus two to your damage result. So the higher you roll, the more damage you end up getting. Oh, so, okay, so in that instance... It would have been no. It would have been no difference. Or, so, no, or, or the well, only difference would, the thing would have been dead. Well, yeah. Basically, so basically, your extra damage you would have been on top of your normal damage, and plus whatever bonus from the creature's weight or whatever the GM decided to throw in, because your attack roll was so high, thirteen extra successes at plus two per, you would have had an additional plus twenty six to your damage roll, which would so, have given me the same result. Well, I mean, but but the the idea being that. Be you know that that there is sort of beyond a certain that there is something that benefits you if you do get one of those because every Earthdawn player has a, a story from a campaign where either they themselves or somebody else at the table had some ridiculously high exploding die. In fact, at a con game, I convention game that I ran back in January, um, weaponsmith in the group decided to use his craftsman skill to try and break into a building and like rolled a forty something and basically completely silently took a door off its hinges. Um, but so, but having those, those asterisk successes, and I completely understand that that mechanic of where your really awesome dice rolls contribute, um, still does that, but it, I think does that even a little bit more than it used to. Okay. My record was actually done with my ancient orc troubadour attacking a horror with melee weapon, getting 128. Wow. I hate that guy. And that was actually rolled in front of Heathen Dog. Was that yes. was actually there when that happened? Yes, yes, I was. That's... One of the ones that, that I remember uh, involved a wizard, um, one of the PC wizards casting dispel magic on another PC in the group, um, and then he proceeded to blow up the effect test, getting something like a thirty-five or something. <laughs> this was at like second circle um, or third circle, um, not realizing that what like the he announced the result and like the room fell silent for a moment because everybody knew that something significant had just happened um <laughs> and not realizing that from what i had decided about the other the target character's background uh it probably should have actually killed him um but that would not have been cool yeah oh, we would have done it anyway <laughs> Defensive would have um, been funny at the time, kind of like Roger Rabbit. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, but yeah, there's plenty of plenty of examples of that. So, yeah, I mean, I again, I completely understand, especially for people who have been playing the game for a long time and have a lot invested in the stories of their characters and their groups and their adventures and things that have happened, how changes to the system can especially if they are sort of counter to the environment and, and habitat that has grown up around that particular table and that particular group, I can completely understand how people might have issues with it. And by all means, if you want to make changes that are more suitable to your own table environment, that's awesome. I mean, 
you know, whatever. Yes, that's, that's, that's right. That's, 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 I want everyone listening to know that. I mean, they're called house rules for a reason. If you want, you, you can, you can ditch the, 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 the system he has and go back to. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, we, go, go, we still go sell first edition level. books on our website. You want to buy them, we'll take your money. Yeah. And then, and then you'll have the chart right there and you just go back to the chart. It's fine. It's great. You know, but if, if you go to a con, if you go to any official game, just remember that they're going to play by the official rules and you have to be flexible with that. But in your own home game, man, there's no one watching you. You could do it however you want. Yeah. Really. I'm, I'm busy editing manuscripts. I don't have time to police everybody's game. Yeah. Josh isn't spying through your webcam, man. He, you, you can do whatever you want. Or is he? So, you know, I, even, I mean, honestly, if people come and play at a demo that I'm running, um, I'm going to be at Gen Con this year. I have three games that I'm running, so feel free to sign up. Um, oh, good plug. The, um, Bam. <laughs> um, the, the, the way that I run it, even at a demo, is largely to get the experience to people, because those tables will have a mix of people familiar with the game and new people. And I don't want to necessarily overwhelm the new people. I want to get them in and having a good time so that they then they then come to the booth and spend money on us. Oh, and so, and, and so the games that, that I run at the cons, while they are recognizably earthed on, are in some ways kind of stripped down. No, that um, happens a lot. It happens a lot yeah. at uh, cons. I get that a lot. Yeah. So, you know, I, uh, I, I, so yeah, I don't know, not to belabor the point, but seriously if if people are having a good time and they are finding use with what we are putting out now or continuing to find use in what they had before i mean tabletop rpgs are one of those things where honestly you don't need to sink a lot of money into them to get a lifetime of use out of it right i mean uh, my all of my books are still useful right uh, yeah, I have I have first edition of Earthdawn, first edition of Vampire, first edition of Werewolf, first edition of Mage, and I am not buying the other editions, man. I spent a ton of money getting all these books. I'm going to get as much use out of possible. But when when I, I do hear of a good thing that happens in a new edition, say uh, second edition Shadowrun really fixed up combat, really fixed it up, made it flow a lot better. I use that in my first edition game. Mm-hmm. I, I do stuff like that, you know, like, oh, that, that's great. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to try and port those rules over, see, see if I can get them to plug in to the books that I have. So there you go. Hey, uh, Josh, when playing, what is your favorite discipline to play? Oh, geez. Um, say, say wizard, say wizard. Troubadour. I, 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 well, wizard. So, OK, back in third edition days back in in the red brick days back when i was still contributing um there was a thing that they did on their website where each of the contributors kind of made themselves or made how they would be as a character in in third edition and my character was a tuscrang troubadour wizard no stop you're just saying that because <laughs> i no, I, 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 I swear oh you political animal wizard um no that honest honest to you know hand to heart that's that's what he was wow. um unfortunately that site isn't really up anymore so i think i've still got it maybe saved on my hard drive somewhere but um i i I, I i definitely like troubadours i like wizards um i am fond of sword masters um 
honestly, I, I can find something that I like about all of them. You've already said, Troubadour Wizard. Stop it. <laughs> no, I mean, I agree. You there is something great about every single one of the classes. I do like how the classes in general are not easily pointed out, well, this is your fighter class, that's your healer class, that's your... I mean, you have a warrior, but he's more than just ice wing sword. There's so much more to the classes. And with the dynamicism of uh, how everything is magically based and how they could, everything flows. And it's actually mm-hmm. great. I have a kind of an offbeat question. Um, has FASA Games been trying to make any inroads and in maybe getting some sort of um, video game RPG of Earthon out there? Oh, with unlimited time and resources. Um, yeah. I have, like, that is one of those things that I, every time I go and, like, start playing a video game i think about hmm how would this be suited to adapt to earth dawn and how would i do that um you know like the 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 shadow run returns games that hairbrain schemes put out recently like how would that work with earth dawn and hmm how would earth dawn look if we did it in a sort of dragon age style game or a sort of um like uh, Elder Scrolls, Skyrim, Morrowind kind of like what like what would be, you know, what would be the focus and, and what would be the highlight of of, a, of an Earth Dawn game set in this sort of style? Like a, a, a Fallout in terms of like game engine Fallout slash Skyrim style Earth Dawn game would have a rather different focus than one that was done with a Dragon Age type engine or a Shadowrun Returns, you know, type of isometric tactical game. Um, unfortunately, I'm not sure what the license situation, what the what the ownership situation is in terms of video game rights for Earth Dawn. Because there's a bunch of stuff from FASA that because of its acquisition of the because of the FASA interactive acquisition by Microsoft that then kind of broke off into its own thing. And like it's it's a convoluted mess. And I am a not a legal person by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so you say and, that and, you are not part of that process. That's yeah, I'm like, <laughs> not part of that process. If if something came up where somebody who had the legitimate ability to do it and the like and we had the rights to grant them to do it, I would be very interested in being a part of the development process uh, from a sort of shaping the story and setting point of view. Um, but Video games are like tabletop RPGs are are work. Oh no, yeah, it's it's a different animal. Video games are yeah. a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, great. Nope, I I blew through all my content plus some, so we're good. Like the the setting is ideal for development in a game. Yes. Yes. Like there is so much story potential there that that it would I mean it would be it would be really cool, but I 
Well, and and it's also that the that the sort of greater knowledge of the IP isn't there the same way that it is for Shadowrun. Be well, and and the Genesis, but Shadowrun has a very unique setting, um, like a very unique IP. There, like Shadowrun, like everybody kind of to a certain extent knows Shadowrun. Earthdawn, while it is kind of special, can come across as kind of just another fantasy game, and I think that can be an issue. That's true, but I think there is enough within it to differentiate it, but it would require, of course, getting the word out there about the system. Um, so definitely have to start small, of course. But anyway, uh, thank you very much for your time here. We really appreciate it, Josh. Oh, yes. hey, happy to happy to be here. Anything that gets me a break from editing and revising and, and pulling what little hair I have left out trying to um, smooth off the rough edges. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, uh, Garthon's having a little trouble with his, uh, with his No, his I think Twitch it was just Max who couldn't hear me. Everyone else could. Oh, Bob's saying, oh, too. That's enough. weird, because yeah, I didn't change yeah, any okay. settings between those times. All right, that's weird. But, uh, Josh, thank you very much for, for coming on the show, and I, I hope you stick around for these other segments, because uh, um, old folk like us are, are going to get a kick out of it. Oh, we do, yeah, have one, we do have one final question from the chat. Okay. Is it possible to get one of my old characters put permanently into Earth on 4th Edition lore as a legendary figure? That's you. That's not the chat. <laughs> no, that's for the chat. Azure Worm 66 asked that. He, he just requested that Garthon be made a legendary NPC. No, no. I will burn you down. I'll burn it all down. Burn it all down. <laughs> okay. I'll I, I stick around for a little bit. Oh, actually, one one last quick thing before we move on to the next segment. If people are interested in keeping up with news on Earth, Don, um, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I am on Twitter at Metaxas, M-A-T-A-X-E-S. Um, there is a Google Plus group that kind of talks Earth, Don, and, and has updates about FASA game stuff. Uh, we have website and forums there that stuff can can be brought up at. So we, we can be found and information is available. Great. Or not. I am there. Um, while I am rambling on about the game of choice, uh, feel free to chime in periodically to see if people can uh, hear you still while you work on that. Because we're getting people saying they still cannot hear you. Yeah, I just saw that comment. Twitch is acting up for me. That is fantastic. Yeah. I'm not changing any settings. Twitch is just not being my friend. Yeah. Oh, Twitch okay. is not being Al's friend today. This is this how it is. But Rick, go ahead. Tell, tell, tell us about uh, the, the games that got you into gaming. Yes, so I had to make a choice uh, when the topic came up, you know, and it was, it was a hard one to make because, you know, I could have easily picked, well, actually I couldn't have. Uh, Wizardry 1, 2, and 3 uh, would definitely have been high on the list. Um, and then Bard's Tale 1, 2, and 3 as well. Uh, I found it a little more difficult to find those early games in their original uh, version. 
But uh, Wasteland was very soon after in 1988, and uh, I played the heck out of that game. And uh, so I decided to cover that one for Rick's uh, origin story for gaming. Outstanding. And how old? How old are you? How old are you? Hold up very well. <laughs> so I'm uh, I'm 43. So I was probably around 15 years old when I played that. So I was I was easily um, about five years into my PC gaming experience. Okay, great. Now to, so tell us it, about the game. Yeah, yeah Wasteland is a uh, sci-fi turn-based tactical RPG uh, featuring 8-bit graphics. Whoa, awesome. eight, 8 entire bits? bits? 8 entire bits, I'm Holy telling you. Crud. And it, it was actually developed by Interplay, a company long since defunct uh, and published by EA. Yeah, Interplay had a lot of really great games, though. They did, especially way back in the day. I mean, uh, I think I probably played a good majority of them, actually. Um, this game released in 1980, originally on the Apple II Plus and the Commodore 64. And wow. it re-released in 2013, uh, and it was remastered by In Exile uh, Entertainment. Uh, so if any of you guys want to buy Wasteland, first of all, Wait for the sale. Do not purchase it separately. On Steam, it's six bucks. On GOG, it's seven bucks. Keep in mind, GOG is typically one dollar more, but you get tons of goodies when you buy on GOG. They always scan in the old manuals and all the books that come with them. They're all scanned in beautifully. And it's usually DRM free. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so wait for the sales because for the Wasteland Two, which is a modern game, also came out in 2013. That's how. Uh, why Wasteland 1 was remastered it came as a bundle for Wasteland 2 Director's Cut but uh, you can it's a regular $40 uh, game Wasteland 2 Director's Cut but it's typically on sale for $14 when it goes on sale so definitely and then you nice. get Wasteland 1 and 2 so it's uh, quite a deal great so I went into this uh, my hopes were simply nostalgia and smiles I didn't actually expect to be uh uh, amazed by, in. yeah, roped in by an old game. I, I've become lazy with modern day interfaces and uh, uh, technology. Uh, but I got to say it was a lot of fun. I put about four hours into this and I definitely did get a lot of smiles out of it. So first and foremost, what has changed? Uh, so I thought I was going into Wasteland Classic, that's what they call it. But uh, in this remastered edition, they did some uh, I'd say some pretty powerful, significant changes to the game that actually greatly improved it. Uh, it has a mouse interface now, so any of the uh, buttons are now clickable by mouse. And uh, of course, you can also use the old hotkeys as well. Uh, and any of the encounter scenes where it brings up an image of the monster, all those images have been remastered to kind of look like a, a little painted image rather than 8-bit eight, eight graphics. So, Aww. So, yeah. Is there, know, is there a setting where you could see the old images? No, even the original boot-up controls are original. So there's no sort of options menu where you can do advanced uh, settings. Possibly there's some code you could type in uh, in some cheat mode kind of thing to enable that. I, I haven't done any research on that. Okay, there's I was just a, curious. But the, yeah, I had mixed feelings about that. But um, one thing I did enjoy reading is that a lot of the people that were working on Wasteland 2, and I couldn't find much information on the Wasteland 1 remastering, uh, but there are a lot of the original Wasteland uh, designers. Oh, that's pretty uh, cool. 
So let me post this in. I know Max is going to love this. Oh, here we go. So here's some links. Uh, one's, uh, <laughs> he loves it when I put links in Twitch chat. So uh, I've got the, uh, the Wikipedia Wasteland uh, link. Uh, also, events that happened in 1988. I thought that could be fun to see, uh, rewind the clock for everybody. I also linked to In Exile Entertainment to see what they've been doing. They remastered Bard's Tale not too long ago in 2004 or five. And then also, this is the next topic, the new music soundtrack for the game. So Edwin Montgomery, uh, uh, originally the game did not have a soundtrack. It just had a bunch of beeps and boops for sound effects, but no music. And uh, the music is amazing. And he has also done the music for Wasteland 2 as well. So click into there, you can see the SoundCloud uh, links to all the songs for the game. And it actually is, uh, it takes this 8-bit game and it makes it that much more immersive when you're playing it with that modern uh, kind of uh, Blade Runner, Vangelis type mix. I think that's how he even described it. That's nice. It is nice that for the game to do some kind of update so it helps it. Because a lot of the old games don't hold up quite very well. Fantasy no. Star 1. <laughs> and then probably the one of my favorite um, updates, and I couldn't find who narrates it, but... Originally, the game comes with a little booklet, and it's got paragraphs or little stories labeled, you know, paragraph one, two, three, four, blah, blah, blah. So that same prompt comes up in the game, read paragraph 10. But it's also clickable by the mouse, and then a little window comes up that has all the text already in the game. So you don't actually have to refer to the scanned copy of the book. Oh, thank anymore. goodness. And it's beautifully voice acted and narrated. I loved it. So... If you can deal with the interface, you know, it's a very, very story-rich game. Great. So, so prose, rich story, uh, immersive music soundtrack. I like the old-fashioned Bard's Tale, Wizardry, Wasteland-type combat where it's like slot machine style. It's scrolling past you, and you see if you hit or miss, and how much damage, what killed, how much damage you took. It, it, you never know what you're going to get when you hit start combat. It's, it's just like pulling the lever on a slot machine. And then... Hmm. The old school custom character design I thought was laughably enjoyable. I spent four hours playing the game, but technically I spent three hours playing the game because I spent one hour creating my characters. Of course. Uh, <laughs> so all you have to do is hit re-roll, 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 re-roll over and over and over again until you get these random number generators for each stat. And, of course, I'm looking for max stats. I'm looking for those 18s, you know? Oh, yeah. And um, so uh, I literally spent an hour... Um, just rolling the, the best characters and picking a, a, a good variety of skills. It was fun. Did anyone who played those old-style games where you would roll randomly for your stats ever just go, oh, I, I rolled my first set, let's go? No, no. Heck no. Uh, no, you got to keep rolling until you get at least three 18s. Come on now. <laughs> yeah. So uh, now, unfortunately, to the cons. Oh, no. Yep, so... There's some interface issues. One, if you go shopping, uh, the gold is per character. Each of your characters is a separate inventory, but you don't have one mass uh, money pool. So if you send the wrong person in the shop, you know, trying to buy, he's like, oh, crap, he doesn't have the money. Let me go back out. Let me pull the gold. Oh, yeah, the first Bard's Tale did that, too. That was so annoying. It is. It's, it's really annoying. Um, but it was also a little nostalgic because it's funny. When you look back at these old games and you think about how you enjoyed them then, you didn't really think 
too much of it because you were just happy to have a damn interface to a game that you know was even usable um and but nowadays with all the interfaces we've had since then it's it's definitely quite a, a cumbersome well choice. also it was probably actually more work for the programmers to give to give everyone their own money but they went well everyone's going to carry their own money of course you know oh, of course logical well, maybe not. I mean, basically, if you had programmed it so that each sort of character had their own inventory slots, then gold being one of those slots makes sense from a, a data management point of view. That is true if you code it that Very way. True. Yeah, in other words, you would have, a, have to have a whole separate mechanic for something that's shared between all characters. Because I think of it being set as a separate pool, but yeah, that would yeah, be true. Yeah, this, yeah this, is whole, this is a space issue, probably, a coding space issue. <laughs> yeah, and... Um, Inventory management in general, just trying to trade equipment between players. So every time you loot, you select which character loots it. And then you're like, oh, now I got to reorganize my inventory. I want to switch his weapon to that guy. And you have to select each item individually, then target which player it goes to, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So reorganizing inventory was quite a chore. The the sandbox progression path is very unforgiving. Uh, If you roam a little bit, to stray into another area of desert, you're going to have monsters that continually will just uh, stomp you and squish you. And there's no real indication because when you enter into an encounter, all you know is it's a new monster. You don't know how much health it has. You don't know how much it's going to hurt you for. So it's a very trial uh, trial and error type uh, combat system. And and, I kind of missed that old system where you could wander into someplace dangerous. A lot of games just scale everything, which kind of bothers me. But then again, it's nice not walking to the wrong part of town and saying, oh, look, a red dragon. Your party is dead. It's like, wait, yeah, what? Yeah. Give me some indication that I'm about to get my ass kicked. And, um, and it's funny, too, when you die, the game actually just closes after it says you lose, you know. It's, uh, no. It, it doesn't even take you back to the main menu. It just completely closes up. So oh um, God, old that's school. Awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> You're so dead. The program dies. Yeah. <laughs> you do not deserve to play. Oh, that's Just beautiful. Stop. Play something else. Play Pong. And so, uh, uh, one of the things that also is annoying. So, uh, when what I thought was interesting too is this game didn't just have you're alive then you're dead. It had unconscious, uh, I think, uh, seriously wounded, uh, critically wounded, mortally wounded, comatose, and then dead. Uh, and when you start, when you get to serious, you can't recover without a medic's help. So if all of your characters are unconscious, uh, it will keep you alive and recycle the combat until one of them wakes up. And then you try to, even though you're getting your ass kicked, your one guy comes back with one health, everyone else is still unconscious. You know you're just going to get knocked unconscious again. And you can't run because that comes after their attacks to actually run away. So if you're finding a, a whole bunch of really weak mobs and they don't have really the ability to make you seriously wounded uh, because they can't hit you hard enough, but they can just pelt you with all this little minuscule small damage, you're essentially caught in this infinite loop of being unconscious and you can't recover from the combat. It was actually hysterical. And you can't die. You cannot die. You can't end the combat. But you can't yeah. live. You right. can't. So nice. that's, uh, I actually had the alt tab, and, or sorry, control, I couldn't alt tab. I had a control alt delete, canceled the session, restore save game, and um, just hope I didn't end up with that. And <laughs> not again. go there again. Yeah, yeah, go the other way. Yeah. All right, that's great. Do you have another one? This well, I got, I got uh, an, an entire slide for the biggest con whatsoever, uh, and it was uh, an interface element. So let me s- set the scene for you. So I walk up to a bar stool. And it's my party of four. 
and I click the bar stool. Actually, I'm hit west to go into the bar stool, and it says only one person can sit there. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I do know there's a way to split my party out, so let me do that. So uh, this is a on the slide. You'll see there's a long plethora of commands I had to type, uh, or hotkeys uh, actually, to make this event happen. For me, sitting on a bar stool, bribing the bartender, and walking away from the bar stools. All I wanted to do should be three things. No, I had to. Do encounter, run, single direction, west, evade, 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 yes, view, west, talk to NPC, bribe. And then I realized, oh, crap, I don't even have any money on that character. So I had to go east again, rejoin party, select character, pull gold, encounter, run, single direction, evade, 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 yes, view, west, talk to NPC, bribe, east, rejoin. And finally, after you rejoin party, you have to actually reorder your party again to make sure your uh, your tanks are up front and your weak guys are down the bottom. Wow. Yeah. Hey, so Elgar, yeah, this is actually a uh, question for the chat asking if you actually played Wasteland 2. I uh, bought this Wasteland Classic in conjunction in that bundle with Wasteland 2. And uh, I literally finished my four hours with Wasteland 1 today. Uh, and Wasteland 2 is going to be soon on the docket, most definitely. Great. So I seem to recall that Wasteland is sort of in some ways like a spiritual predecessor of the Fallout games. Yes, uh, if you read the uh, the Wikipedia article, uh, there's actually a funny quote coming from Interplay, and I wonder who actually said it. it doesn't state it, but it says that Interplay uh, wanted to continue uh, the the franchise called Wasteland, but they couldn't because it said something about uh, EA would not give uh, release Wasteland from their clutches or something like that. So I that's find that they... hard to believe from EA. Yeah. They are so, pinnacles of corporate responsibility and kindness. No kidding. Yeah. Them and Ubisoft both. Yeah, I don't uh I was hoping I could see that find that quote really fast and I can't. But uh in any case, uh that's when they started up the Fallout series is to be the uh precursor to that. Great. So I included two screenshots. Uh one is the and I couldn't find any screenshots from the traditional and unfortunately, I don't have art programs on the system I was playing the game on. Um, so uh, this is a traditional art shot from uh, the original Wasteland showing you the interface for Aww. combat. Nice. Ooh. So the only thing different with that interface is that I could uh, click those buttons with my mouse. And then, of course, the uh, the jewels would be more of a painted style rather than 8-bit graphics. And then the next slide is a picture of the kind of the overworld top view map as you roam around. And uh, as you can see, it's very beautiful. But mind you, with beautiful soundtrack. There. It's so extreme. Yeah. And of course, uh, if I had to uh, give this an overall rating, and of course, this is incredibly biased, I challenge a 30-year-old or younger to play the classic version of this game and not bang their head against the wall because of the interface and uh, <laughs> rage quit. The, the, this, yeah, this, this last slide actually reminds me. I, I think I'm playing Paperboy. Yeah. So I, I got to say, it, the only reason I was able to give it three stars, well, of course, uh, was the soundtrack. And then, of course, the narrated voices really made it uh, alive for me again. And uh, But it was very nostalgic for me to play it. Three stars for me, but I, if I recommend to young gamers, I, I just would not recommend the game. Okay, well, hey, that's, that's, part of the, that's part of this deal we're doing here. And this was, as you said, a game that you played in your youth? Yep, I was a 15-year-old uh, kid uh, still in junior high school and uh, 
probably losing friends by the minute because all I did is play this game probably for uh, half a summer. Nice. Did this live up to your expectations? In terms of uh, nostalgia, absolutely. I, I, I truly did enjoy it, and I enjoyed the, uh, the soundtrack and then the extra uh, narrations. Well, cool. Thank you very much, Elgarian, for this uh, Elgarian's Bargain Bin gaming update. So I, I, I've got to say, I, I found that going back to some of these older games that that I remember fondly from playing when they originally were around, that I don't have the patience for a lot of them anymore. Oh, join the club on that one. I, I play a lot of classic games. Oh, he's got all the consoles. Yeah, almost all of them. I don't have a Neo Geo AES, but pretty much everything else. Um. But, yeah, a lot of the older games that you I remember so fondly, especially older, like the really old PC games like Wasteland or Barge Tale or anything like that. Yeah. They really are, do not hold up just because of the interface limitations and the clunky the way it worked. Everything takes so long. And also a lot of it was very almost slavishly devoted to the way pen and paper games were set up. And so instead of really innovating, they were just amazed they could get it onto a computer. Yeah. But, yeah, a lot of them really don't. I mean, earlier I was talking uh, about, uh, with Heathen Dog and Elgarian, about I was playing Breath of Fire 1 on the Super NES. It's one of my favorite games. I hadn't played it in years and years. Pop it in, and I still like the storyline, like how it looks, everything's great. But I forgot that the random encounter rate in this game is insane. Like, every 5, 10 steps, I'm in a fight. And it just, it just starts grinding on you after a while. Like, why am I having to fight? I can't even walk 10 steps. And it's even for a Super NES I didn't, game, I didn't really see bad. these guys coming. Yeah, and <laughs> it's only ten steps. I should have seen them. Yeah, I mean, even the Final Fantasy one on the NES isn't that bad. It's just really, really. So I had to stop playing. It just got too, too much. Anyway, but yeah. What do we got next? What do we got next? I'm glad you asked what we have next because it is Heathen Dog, Heathen Dogma anime on the stream. Origins oh, outstanding! Ooh, I love it. I love it. Take it away. Uh, thank you. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to harken back to, uh, to to the days of yore. Many of you who are right now listening may not have been born yet. Don't don't tell me that. I'm gonna I'm gonna push through. Okay, I got two anime for you today that actually uh, helped form the base of my adult psyche. And after I review them, Wait, you're, you're going to say, "Oh God, your adult dog. psyche? That's pretty extreme." Yes. Yes, and, and after after I review these, you're going to say, oh, my God, you must be a monster. Well, that's but extreme no. spelled E-E-M at the end. Because, <laughs> you know, it's the 80s. And no E in the beginning. It's just an X. That's right. It's a big X. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The first, uh, the, the first of the two is Fist of the North Star. Oh. Now, yes, yes. And uh, as you can see from my slide, it says, the most violent, action-packed, animated film of all time. Well. Of that time, I would say yes. I would say I would say that is true. All right, let's 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 start with the guts of this thing first, shall we? Uh, the production company was uh, uh, Toy Animation, distributed by Same. Uh, the release date was 8 March 1986. Running time of 110 minutes, originally in Japan, and it made 18 million U.S. dollars. Now, first, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you. Uh, younger Heathen Dog's take on this film, 
and I watched it again just a few days ago just to see what happened, and I'll give you the older one. Uh, when I was young, I didn't have a whole lot of good uh, male role models, so uh, I latched on to what I could. And uh, when you're floundering around uh, a young adolescent trying to figure out what it is to be a man, uh, without any guidance, you stumble upon uh, physical and sexual dominance as, as your idea. That's ideas. a little too uh, psychological talk here. I know, I know. I guess you just say there was this show, there was these guys who were freaking awesome and they beat the hell out of people and I freaking loved it. Yes, and that, that's exactly why I, I attached this thing because I thought, well, this is what I want to be. This is awesome. This guy is awesome. The, Kenshiro, the, the guy in the picture, he is the Fist of the North Star, which is a, a school of martial arts. Now, uh, in, in, this, in this martial art, you are, you are taught uh, really, really dominating, dominating fighting styles. And if you, if you go to the next slide, it's, it's actually a GIF, and you'll, you'll see uh, the, one of them is the, the hundred-handed punch. And uh, he does that a lot. It was visually stunning at the time. And it, 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 it got my blood up. And it was fun. It was, it was horribly violent. And as a boy, I loved it. But turns out you didn't, he didn't need to punch you 100 times to actually kill you. He could punch you once. And, you'll say, and, and then the guy will say, oh, you hit me one time. Oh, that was weak. First you suffer, then you die. And then he'll say, as, as Max Liao said already in chat, you're already dead. Let me go to the next slide. This is, he has a technique called chi blocking. He can punch you one time, uh, either stop or, or re reverse your chi flow to make your head explode. Whenever you punch someone, their head exploded. Also, Tarantino level of violence, loved it. Loved it. Which was shocking in a, essentially, cartoon from 1986 yes, a cartoon yeah exactly this 86 they we, they're, they're still uh, actually uh, I think I think the slang was Japanimation at this time yeah that's what that was the term everyone used because yes. anime hadn't made it across the pond exactly and, now, and because cartoons are for kids exactly yes. right exactly right now uh, uh, this this is set in a post-apocalyptic wasteland where everything is horribly irradiated almost no place in this in the whole world can grow food so everyone's living off of uh, canned goods from the old world that's dead. Now, this, the radiation uh, uh, had had the effect of killing 99% of the people on the planet. The 1% of the people that survived became physical, like, mini hulks. I mean, they, they all are just all ripped, all cut, and they all, some of them even have magic powers like this North Star. If you go to the next slide, this is a, this is a guy named Ray, who he... Uh, who he came across. Ray's, Ray's looking for his sister, his sister's lost, whatever, and they, they joined up for a while. And his power, he's got laser fingers. And he's, as you can see from the GIF, laser fingers are... Uh, I thought it was more like super tiger claw martial arts or something. No, no, no. They're actual lasers. They're actual lasers that have zero range. Really? Yes. And uh, he, he touches you, runs his fingers across you, and slices you like a, like a bread slicer. And if, if, if you're watching the, if you're watching the Jeff right now, uh, the, the, the very first guy he hits, uh, if you focus on him and not anyone else, you can see him slowly fall apart more and more throughout the entire 10 seconds. It's great. Just letting people absorb that. Good. Yeah, that's right. Absorb it. Now, uh, when I was a kid, that's why I love this film. Ultra-violent um, story of, of, uh, of Kenshiro trying to find his... Uh, his, uh, his his lost love, his, uh, his best friend betrayed him, uh, left him for dead, took his girl for his own, and he's on a path 
to to this guy's house to kick his butt and get his girl back. And then it all takes a turn where where his family his his, his family gets involved and 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 it all all it all turns bad. And at the end, at the end of the show, in this horribly irradiated, parched, uh, blasted out land, after the last fight between Kenshiro and his older brother Rao, uh, a little a little a little flower blooms on the ground. Oh yes, it's supposed to be hopeful, like oh no, the world is healing, the world is healing. No, that last fight had so much blood that you remember remember the saying, "Blood makes the grass grow." Learned it in basic training. There you go. I learned it here because that's exactly what happened. The, the, the fight was so ultra-violent. Blood, blood everywhere. Uh, but both of the combatants, both Kenshiro and Rao, survived, but were both severely wounded, lost like 18 people's worth of blood each, and still living. But the, the ground was so saturated with blood, I thought, well, that, that's what healed the planet. All the blood. <laughs> well, it could, you know, the blood of heroes, I guess. But I rewatched it. And it doesn't stand up. I mean, uh, my my whole uh, uh, clinging on to, to ultra ultra violence, and and uh, and the, the whole idea of that as a person, of course, I've grown out of that. You know, I, I have since gotten better role models. I understand, I understand what what for me what being a man is, and it's not this. So the the, the storyline is nice, uh, but the actual the actual fighting and and horrible violence just for me doesn't hold up as much as it did. Well, I kind of look at it like an '80s movie, like RoboCop or something. In its time period, oh man, but doesn't uh, doesn't really hold up. It's yeah, it's well, it's RoboCop a lot. It's along those lines. It's along those lines. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Ro- Ro- RoboCop, Ro- RoboCop is a cult thing, but yeah, I get it. Yeah. So that that is Fist of North Star. Now, uh, my next, uh, my next one. This this one. This one. Oh man. The uh, with uh, again the whole uh, the whole uh, um, ultra violence. And uh, well, not not as much blood as Fist of North Star, but definitely very very violent. Uh, it, it goes along the same lines of physical and sexual domination was what I thought what being being a man was. So I thought that Gogol Thirteen was the man. Well, he is the man with the custom M sixteen. Yes, he is. Yes, an M sixteen that that does a perfect a perfect imitation of the perfect sniper rifle. It does indeed. So I thought that was fun. Uh, See, the, well, what's funny uh, is when you bring this up, I actually did not know. There was an anime for this. I for years, years and years, I always thought it was just a video game. I was going to mention that it's a video game for the yeah. Nintendo. It's actually movie and anime. Yeah, this this is this is the movie that I, that I saw when I was a kid. I, I didn't I didn't see the actual anime series, but uh, this was by uh, let's see, production company Tokyo Movie, uh, distributed by uh, Toho Tawa. Uh, release date May twenty eighth, nineteen eighty three. Running time of ninety one minutes. And I watched it as as I did Fist Our Star dub not sub because I was not as cultured as I am now. But uh, the, again, like, like I said, Gogo Thirteen, he is an assassin. Uh, he he kill, he kills for money. He has ze- he shows zero emotion. He is he he never he never misses a mark. He never misses a deadline. He always he always he always gets his kill and he always gets away. And every single woman who interacts with him sleeps with him. I didn't. I didn't put those slides in here because they are graphic, and I didn't want to do that. But uh, when I was a kid, I thought this was cool because I didn't know what really uh, what good sexual relations was at the time. Right, you're so a little I deep thought, in that kind of stuff. Come on now. I'm just. I'm just saying. I. I thought. I thought that's what it was, and and the the way he does it is not is not the way you do it. It's the way I thought you did it back then. Now I. Now I know different. But uh, uh, if we if we if we go to. Uh, 
to, to the next slide, you, you, will, you will see uh, an assassination uh, uh, happening. And uh, this, is, uh, this is him actually uh, shooting a target from a, from, a, from a sign through a building into another building through, uh, I think it was 30, 30 millimeters of bulletproof glass. So, you know, that's fun. I like how he shoots the bullets through the other bullet holes. That's yes, awesome. yes. He's such perfect aim. Like I said, the, the perfect sniper rifle. <laughs> this is an M16, apparently. <laughs> yes. And uh, when I was a kid, the, 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 uh, the constant winning was, was, uh, was something I really wanted. Because as a kid, you don't constantly win. I mean, that's part, that's part of being well, an adolescent is that, figuring out your way. That's why right? people you know, cheer on certain football teams. Come on now. Exactly, exactly. You know, but so I, I didn't know my way. He had, he had a way. It was worked perfectly for him. So I, lo I looked up to him. You know, not as a real person. I wasn't nutters, but uh, you know, as, as, as an ideal. But that was when I saw it before. Now I saw it again. It was just as good, but for different reasons. I saw the amazing artwork in the kills. I couldn't put all of them, all of them on on the slides because they were really, really too graphic. But if, if we, if we go to the next one. You, you can see uh, you can see what I'm talking about, and uh, he he fires a shot, he makes his kill, and then the the cinematography, the whole falling in falling into the water, and and the the, the guy's father screaming no 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 Franklin no, it was amazing. So that 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 I I, I didn't see that when I was a kid. But right, you're focused on the action or the violence, exactly, not but, the but, storytelling. And the... Exactly, yeah, and but seeing it now, I'm like, wow, the, 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 the story isn't deep, it's not immersive, but it's, 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 it's workable, but the really thing was, was the artistry of the death scenes. And let, let's, let's go to my last slide, the, uh, the, this is the aftermath of that shot. And we, you see him in the pool, floating, close, floating up to the surface, and then his father jumping into the pool, going, going to his son. He's like screaming, no, no. And that was beautiful. And then, of course, Gogo putting away his, putting away his perfect sniper M16. But uh, all of the, all the death scenes had, had an artistry to it. It had a uh, – they, they, they really put time to make it visually stunning. Not, not, just, not just graphically violent, but visually stunning, which I thought was just amazing. That is, it's nice that it actually holds up when you go and rewatch yes. it. Yes, it does. It, it holds up to a, to a higher, I don't want to say a higher taste, but a, a different, uh, a, a more older, refined taste. There is something, there's something in there for you, and it is prevalent throughout the, throughout the whole movie, just like when you were a kid. The violence was prevalent throughout the movie. That's what hooked you. But, but now all, all, of the, all of the artistry and, the, and the, 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 anim, the animated deaths, and oh, man, it just, it, 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 was, it was really, really kind of moving. Really, I, I didn't expect to have that happen to me, but it did. It was great. That's pretty cool. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So that's what I got. Oh, just those two? Just those two. Well, thank you very much, Keith the Dog, for a look back at what made you the uh, the upright and upstanding individual you are today. Got a quick yeah. question. Oh, shoot. So there was a live-action version of this. Uh... No, don't say live-action for this North Star. Don't do it. It got a whopping 3.9 on IMDb. Must be pretty good. No, it was awful. I didn't mention it for a reason. You ruiner of lives. Stop it. I want everyone who heard that to forget. I recommend everyone Neuralize yourself this. if you have to. Stop it. Neuralize and yourself and right now. And then you can watch the live action Dead or Alive. So wonderful. 
All right. Thank you very much, Heathen Dog. As always, you can hear more of Heathen Dog on his exciting streams of doing Star Trek online, The Adventures of Fast McCool. Uh, are you still doing any other streams? I am going to uh, finish out uh, Shadowrun Returns. It's going to go straight to YouTube, though. It's, it's not going to go on, on Twitch. It's going to go to YouTube to finish out the, the, the whole game. It's I not going to take long. Maybe another two or three. Punch. Yeah. yeah, Falcon Punch. He's awesome. He's, he, he gets it done. Yes, he does. Cheat codes intact. Booyah. All right, as always, you could like, follow, and subscribe, Legion of Myth, uh, to get more content like this. Let us know if you're liking it or not. We'll see what we can do about that. Thank you very much, Heathen Dog. You are welcome. Last up in our set segments, it is everyone's favoritest comic poll. It is... Yes, Garthon's comic poll. Garthon talks about, talks about comic books. Uh, this time, instead of three books I pulled this week, we're going to, since it is the Origins episode, I'm going to be talking about three comic books. Well, two of them are series. That, as a young child, I read, and I would kind of let comics can do this, and just wanted to get more. Um, no, not just like Watchmen or anything like that. Everyone lies and says that. Everyone tries to sound like, I was reading Dave Sim. No, you weren't. So, anyway. First up. Secret Wars, number 1 through 12, from 1984. Ah, oh, this was good stuff. OG. That's right. That's It, it, it says I'm there in Twitch. At what point did they lose me? Anyway. <sighs> anyway. Hopefully they didn't lose me again. Anyway. The uh, Secret Wars. Uh, 1 through 12. 1984. In this, the Beyonder takes a bunch of different planets. Puts them together to make a planet called War World. And on that, he grabs almost all the villains and almost all the heroes from Earth. Shoves them on there. And he tells them, hey! Uh, you guys are going to fight it out. And whoever wins, I'm going to kill the other side. And then put you all back on Earth. Yay! It, that sounds super fair. It does. Of course, all the villains and all the bad guys go, Wow, that sounds pretty super cool to us. And the heroes go, Wait, this is a very bad idea. Um, so, basically, it's just an excuse to have all the top heroes join together to fight all the top villains. Uh the series is most notable for issue number eight, where Peter Parker gets the Venom symbiote as a new the suit. Black con the black costume. Absolutely. That's where the black costume comes from. Yeah. You found it in a drawer or something? Uh, the actual setup for that was he runs into Thor and Iron Man, and he looks like their costumes have been repaired after all the bunch, whole bunch of fighting for eight issues. He went, how'd your costumes get fixed? They said, oh, over there in one of those alien labs, we found a machine. It just scanned us and fixed our uniforms. It was awesome. He's like, sweet. So he goes in there, looks around. I don't know which machine they were talking about. And he presses a button, and this black glowy blob appears. He's like, uh, and he touches it and like wraps around him. 
and then it forms that suit. Uh, so he thinks, yeah, score. This sounds legit. Let's yeah, go. He's like, weird. This isn't my costume, but hey. And he, uh, he, when he walks out, Spider Woman at the time was wearing a black and white costume that looked a lot like that. She went, did you just copy my costume? Like, I didn't mean to. It just kind of happened. At the time, they didn't know the suit was alive or anything, uh, or that it was enhancing his powers, or that it was a sentient life form who was actually kind of evil. They that all up, came later. Yeah, they ended up, that ended up being retconned later. It, it started getting kind of, in my opinion, kind of silly, like how much got retconned. Like, that blob turned out to be... That machine that he touched was actually a prison for that blob, and he actually accidentally released it. It was just, come on now. Because he was on, on the blob's home world, the symbiote is actually a murderous criminal. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would he be in there? Anyway, that was all silly retcon stuff that they still keep around. But yeah, issue number eight was the big deal with him getting the symbiote suit. But this whole series set so much in play that still you see in Marvel today, even after all the retcons. But also, as a young kid who hadn't really read a lot of comic books at the time, didn't have a huge backlog, had only, really was only familiar with like cartoons and a few other things, seeing every single hero, to me it was every hero, teaming up together to fight every villain on this giant, you know, er, you know highest stakes possible thing. Sounds just, cool. Yeah, it blew my mind. It actually started forming my love for Captain America as a character, because even when everything was going straight down the poop chute, he was able to stand up and say, no, we can get do this. We can work together. And everyone looked – even Wolverine looked in for leadership. Even the guys like, no, I don't listen to anyone, said, okay, Cap, what do we do? You know, or even if they didn't want to listen, they still would because Captain America was the voice of authority. Yeah, because he's freaking Captain America. Exactly. And – but also every character – I shouldn't say every. Almost every character had their moment to shine. Uh, there's one issue that's just fantastic where the bad guys drop a mountain on the on the heroes. A mountain. And they're underground. And the only person stopping a mountain from killing everyone is the Hulk. Because like, she hulks out. The thing is out. And the Hulk alone is doing it. And he's like, I, I, I can barely hold it. And then Reed Richards starts insulting him. He's like, I always knew you'd fail, Banner. You were never as good as me. He's like, what? It's like, I mean, if we had Thor here or a real hero, maybe we'd get out of this. It just starts insulting him right to his face. And everyone's like, you better shut up, Reed. This is the Hulk. He'll kill you. Reed's like, I know what I'm doing. And, of course, the matter Hulk gets, the stronger, the stronger, stronger he, gets. he gets. Right. Yep. And so Reed, being a genius, just starts insulting Hulk right to his face. And he gets madder and madder. And everyone's worried they're going to die because, like, the mountain was sinking on them and Hulk was straining. Then Hulk just so mad just, like, throws it off of them and... He's about to pound Reed into pace until he realizes, oh, hey, I guess we're safe now. I see what you did there. Yeah, but it was – it's just – the whole series is full of great scenes like that. Um, and it, that's definitely the reason why it now is like the standard. Um, so just so much love. It really – every time I see a big multi-part comic book crossover from any company – I have to ask, is this as good as Secret Wars? Unconsciously, it's always what I'm asking. And usually it's no. Because this was like the first time a company tried it and it worked. Okay, so how did it hold up when you when you reread some of them? Uh, it holds up incredibly well. I mean, the, the writing is a little dated, of course. It's very it's a 1980s book. Um, so it doesn't... Modern books almost... Actually, it's starting to kind of fade out, but kind of have negativity to them, a little cynicism... Um, 
and this one doesn't have that. Everything's always very hopeful, which I like. Um, there are a lot of times, though, you think that the heroes are about to cack it, except you realize, oh, I got three more issues to fill. I think they'll bounce back. So it holds up incredibly well. It's still a five out of five series. It, um, a modern series, something that modern now, that comes that I think is as good as this and still has that hopeful vibe would have been uh, Justice League uh, JLA Avengers crossover, which was fantastic. All right, next series. So, uh, Josh, you big comic book guy. Read, read them every now and then. Um, yeah, I don't read them as much as I would like, and certainly not as much in the in the big two. Um, although I am really, really liking what Marvel is doing with, with Squirrel Girl. I think that's probably one of the funniest comics that is out right now. Oh, Squirrel Girl's fantastic. And I even love her appearance with USA Avengers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ms. Marvel's really, really good. I think Marvel in general is doing some really good stuff. Um, although for the most part these days, I'm tending to read more um, sort of indie and some some image books like Saga and stuff like that. Oh, Saga's fantastic. Have you, have you read any Rat Queens? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Rat fantastic. Queens is fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And no, I'm totally with you there. I, I, I try to read a breadth of stuff. I try to. There, wow. there are only so many hours in the day, unfortunately. And only so many dollars in my wallet. So that's what happens. All right, next up, uh, Amazing Spider-Man issue 300 from 1988. McFarlane. Yep, McFarlane Spider-Man art. Uh, this was the issue, first appearance, well, first full appearance of Venom. In issue 299, you do get a smile. You, know, you, see, you see his face, but 300 is considered first appearance. Um, that became a big deal. Uh, with with him, um, Venom of course is still a major player in the Marvel universe to this day since 1988. Uh, this issue lays out the whole backstory for Eddie Brock, why him the symbiote hate Spider-Man so much, and it's actually kind of sad. The symbiote you actually get the impression is kind of like a jilted lover, like just wants to bond with Peter Parker and be and together forever. He didn't want me. He didn't yeah, want me. He that's really me. the impression you get. Um, where Brock hates. Uh, Peter Parker because Peter Parker destroyed his career because he revealed when Brock uh, misreported uh, who the psycho falsified falsified actually no he didn't falsify he reported the evidence he had at the time and ignored any evidence to the contrary in order That's to the get thing. the story it's not really falsify he just didn't really care and so when Peter Parker and Spider-Man revealed the psycho senior was actually someone else. It destroyed his career and made him a laughingstock. So, so two people joined together to beat him. But this is a great issue um, because it's, it had a great buildup to this. But just this issue alone, Spider-Man has to save Mary Jane from Venom. Um, yes, yeah, so he has to save the girl. He has to fight off his nemesis, someone who's bigger and stronger than him, someone who knows all of his moves. Someone who basically is fighting a more, a more powerful version of himself. Ultimate and the, underdog hero. Yep. And the only thing he has at the end to beat him is he has more experience. He's like, okay, I've had Spider-Man longer than this guy. How do I beat him? And he's like, he just figures out the suit. Well, he remembers that Reed Richards, when he analyzed the webbing from the suit, the webbing was actually part of the suit. And so he's like, okay, if I make – so basically like makes him run out of web fluid to make him weak enough – where you could trick him into the bell tower or get him knocked out long enough to make the bell start ringing and knock him out. So, 
that was nice. Uh, so basically, it ties up nicely, but also gives you that hero's story nicely comprised. Save the girl, fight your nemesis, be more, be better than you were five minutes ago. Great right. art throughout this. Uh, McFarlane was at his peak at this time. Well, I guess you could argue Spawn might have been his peak, but he was doing just fantastic work with Spider-Man at the time. Um, this cover is still iconic to this day. You will see comics totally unrelated to Spider-Man copying this cover. Um, every time Spider-Man Marvel wants a, uh, a sales pop of Spider-Man, they release a cover that looks like this. Like the issue 500 looked just like this. They said said 500, not 300. Um, but that was one of the stories that I, I was always a Spider-Man fan, and this is one that cemented it in my youth. Um, I bought this comic book in a uh, uh, at the base at Alkenbury, England, uh, from the bookstore, and I've had it ever since. So I'm very just a treasured issue because it just brings so much memory back to me, and it was so impactful to me at the time. So when you reread it. Did it did it bring up all those feelings, or did you did you get some more out of it or less? Uh, well, I've reread it so many times. Um, my copy is not mint just because I've pulled out read it so many times because it's such a good book and it's something I like to get back to because this right here was the origin of modern Spider-Man. Um, even to this day, you're still seeing echoes from this book right here, this one issue. The echoes of this are still ringing, even after all the reboots. And so I whip it out every once in a while to see, okay, this is what Spider-Man was. Um, the underdog, always struggling, making it better, trying. Even if he gets the snot kicked out of him, he still keeps trying. And he finds a way. And he never does it through malice. He never does it. He never feels the need that to break someone's neck to stop someone from dying. <clears throat> um, and to me, it's like the quintessential Spider-Man. Outstanding. Me, yeah, to me, even more so than the original John Romita, Stan Lee stuff, which is good. But to me, this is, is quintessential Spider-Man. I gotta say, with <clears throat> McFarlane, uh, I actually noticed him way back. I used to collect Infinity Incorporated. You remember that? Series? Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, that was before he had a super detailed style, but he still had the amazing flowing capes, and uh, he had a tendency to use content in one cell to kind of outline and frame in the cell next to it. I mean, his layouts were amazing. Yep, and they still are. He still could do a great layout, man. And so, yeah, uh, McFarlane is considered one of the kings of comic books, and this issue definitely shows why. They actually, for... They recently had a big issue with Spider-Man, and they were actually using a grab from one panel in this issue for a cover in a modern book. That's how good the interior art is. So, but yeah, Spider-Man 300. Last wow, up. Wow, I, I, can't, I can't wait to hear the, what the next. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow, a little buildup there. Um, actually, it's not as from a series I normally uh, review nowadays. Uncanny X-Men number 212 from 1986. The, Ooh, yeah. Part of the Mutant Massacre storyline. Big arc there. Uh, went through all the X-Books, of which there were like two at the time. Um, actually, there were three if you count New Mutants. Anyway, this arc had to do with the group coming through and 
basically killing all the Morlocks and other mutants. The Morlocks were a sad, disadvantaged group of weirdly freakazoid mutants that lived in the sewers. Caliban was part of them, as was, um, oh, what's her name? Yep, and Leech, and, uh, Artie. Yeah. Did, didn't Storm uh, at one Kalisto. time beat You're a leader? Kalisto. Oh, yes, Kalisto, that's, that's what I'm right. thinking of. Yeah, so Storm Storm beat her in combat to be the leader of them for a while. Yep, that's right. Yep. Okay, yeah, I got you. I think uh, Angel loses his wings around this Yep, thing. this is the storyline that created Archangel. Sweet. Uh, well, this is the storyline where he lost his wings. It wasn't until, like, the next big crossover where Apocalypse replaced him and made him a horseman of death. But in this one, uh, Scalp Hunter, actually, no, Harpoon, pins, his, pins him to the wall by his wings. And just nearly kills him. It this storyline was more brutal than any I'd ever seen a Marvel comic be. It was incredible. The art um, just brought about a sense of panic and darkness through it. Um, so they did great work through that. This issue 212 really stood out to me because it was the first time when Wolverine directly fought Sabretooth. And it was brutal. Well, the fight lasted three issues, I think. And while other stuff was going on. He didn't on, even fight the Hulk that long. No. No, it was a heck of a fight. Um, and that this actually, actually established all the background between Sabretooth and Wolverine. Ah, I can't remember the name of the group that was killing all the Morlocks. Why can't I remember? It had Scalp Hunter, Sabretooth, Arclight. Ah, the, not the Enforcers. Ah, whatever. I'll remember some other time. But the... Uh, this issue, this series, especially this issue, really stuck out to me because it was the first time I got the clue of like, oh, comic books aren't always hope and light. Um, bad things happen to good people. Um, I couldn't believe that they cut that Angel lost his wings and that how he almost died. Um, Marauders. The Marauders. Thank you, thank go. you, Josh. Wikipedia <laughs> to the rescue. <laughs> but the uh, just this whole series cemented a lot of the relationships in the X-Men that are still there, even through all the breakups and reboots. Um, it established the relationship between Sabretooth and Wolverine. And it showed that these people who were basically a family could still be torn apart by basic issues of what they should be doing about the threats they were encountering. But it still showed they still cared about each other, that they could pull together. But it also showed that sometimes you just can't win, which is a brutal lesson for a kid. Um, but when they're cutting Ward Worthington's wings off, it kind of comes through pretty strong. Yeah, sometimes you don't win like this guy. Or there's actually a point in this series where Kitty Pride loses it, and she actually phases someone and puts him into the ground and lets him go. Actually, Harpoon kind of screwed her up, too, because she was in permanent phase when uh, she got hit by his, uh, his bolts, yep. didn't she? Yep, that happened, too. They, they had a whole miniseries just based on good and evil com uh, joining forces just to get her uh, to save her life. Yep, because she was fading out. Yeah, this whole series just had so many downers in it, but it was a very dramatic, and they all pulled together in the end. But it was just brutal to go through. And, but it, in it the was good a, it was a dark ride. It was a dark it was a ride, dark but ride. it was worth taking, especially yeah. for 1986. Um. It really, especially using the X-Men characters to do all this. Because it also brought the question of how far do you go to save other mutants? The Marauders were literally killing all of them. And killing the Marauders would have stopped them, but were they willing to do that? 
Actually, you know, uh, it was written by Chris Claremont. He is actually yep. one of my favorite writers. Yeah, Claremont is still to stay considered like the god of X-Men writing. Um, he introduced the Hellfire Club. He did so much. Uh, but going back and rereading this book, it's, it's what really struck me now that I didn't really get as a kid is the pacing and the composition of the book. Um, it's paced so well. It never rushes into something. It lets it take its time and builds anticipation. And to where you're going, oh my god, what's happening with them? What do you mean next issue? And it does that great Republic serial job of holding you, making you want to see the next thing. Um, but also the way they lay out the pages helps tell the story. The way they play with color. It, just fantastic work all around. Um, I don't think that this series, The Mutant Master Gets the Respect It Deserves in X-Men canon. Um, a lot of people talk about the Executioner song more, which is just okay. Um, or Extinction Agenda, but I, I do have to say, Executioner's Song was the sort of Vega crossover that originally kind of got me into comics. Yeah, Executioner's Song was good. I'm not saying it wasn't. Um, it was that was with Strife and everything, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And that was a really neat storyline as well. And that's not where Mod is a lot more remembered. And that was, man, that was a huge series. I still have most of I, those issues. I got into that by way of the Fox cartoon. Oh, really? Oh, my goodness. I remember that. The, 90, the 90s Fox X-Men yes. cartoon. That's yes. still a highly regarded cartoon. Oh, man, I remember watching that lots, like all of it. I think I watched all of it. What's sad is that came on when I was – was I in junior high or high school when that started? But I was already like knee-deep in, knee in the comics at that time. I was like, oh, a cartoon of the X-Men. It does not meet my approval. Everyone knows that Rogue's hair pops on the other side, you know. So that was my fault. <laughs> Do that voice again. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot believe that Wolverine so is actually drawn that way. Ever notice his costume is, is orange 235, not 230? I can picture you pushing up glasses by the middle with your index finger when you <laughs> oh, say that. Yeah. So, but that, that 90s cartoon actually does hold up pretty well. Not incredibly well, but pretty well. But so, yeah, the final book I'm talking about. Okay, issue number 212, it holds up to me to this day. I, I loved rereading it. It's another thing that I managed to hold on to all these years. Um, that first fight with Sabretooth is just awesome, man. Just brutal. They nearly, they near kill each other. So it, it was impressive. And so that kind of gives you an idea of, like, the books that first hooked me into comics and why I still pay attention to them. Oddly, there's no DC books that really to me, compete with these? Well, I mean, there are. There are series that compete. But, I mean, as a kid, I was mainly a Marvel. That's just... Usually, usually it's how it is. When a kid grows up, they're usually DC. Marvel or DC. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like a, like the Rolling Stones or Beatles. You know, yeah. you're one or the other. And, and until you're old enough, to, you can appreciate both. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it usually depends on, like, the people, the people around you are reading or what the first book you saw. is like, I saw Superman and Batman as a kid growing up, but I didn't see Wolverine and Captain America movies growing up. And so I was a little more interested in them. But the uh, and also you know, they, ah, there were some really good justly stories going on there at the time. But anyway, just to throw it out there, there is a graphic novel. Uh, it's twenty five dollars in Comicsology that has Uncanny X Men two ten through two fourteen, X Factor nine through eleven, New Mutants forty six, Thor three seventy three through three seventy four, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's everything that's involved with the Mutant Massacre. For twenty five bucks, that's really good. 
Yeah, that's a really good deal. Well, I'll wait for it to be on sale because a lot of their stuff goes on sale. Yeah. Sure. Well, guess what? Josh knows his next comic purchase. <laughs> there you go. Better than Execution Song? Sign me up. Now, I, like I said, this was a really good series, especially for its time. Big fan of it. And that's it for Garthon's comic poll this week. The origin story. I can tell the story of my Spider-Man issue 300 because it is a telling tale. I, like I said, I bought it at a bookstore on base where my dad was stationed in England. And as we brought the book home, it started to rain, as it often does in England. And I was trying to protect my brand new comic book, which I was reading in the back of the tiny little Fiat we had. And as we got out of the car, my little brother, the middle child, couldn't wait for me to, to move. So he, like, jumped past me, like, to climbed over me as I was getting out of the car, knocked my comic book from my hand and into the water. Oh, he's still alive? I, I was livid, and, you know, my comic was wet. It was really awesome. And I told you, you know, Spider-Man issue 300, it was special. Look at the cover. The cover said it was special. And I cried and begged my mom to buy me another copy. And uh, the next day, she did. Outstanding. Aww. Outstanding. But my Cockles of my heart. My grandma also took that book that was wet and ironed it to flatten it back out. Wow, the women in your family are, are, are quite loving. They are. And, and, uh, and caregiving. That is why I'm the proud owner to this day of two issues of Spider-Man 300. Nice. Um, so, the thing that I almost killed my brother for a million years ago uh, now puts me in control of two very valuable comics. Outstanding. Yeah. So that that's an origin. That's a, you know, in the movie of my origin story, you know, it's just the moment where fo- slow motion falls in the puddle, and I just start, you know, no. Anyway, let's move on to the RNG. All right. And as as our special guest, I think I think Josh could have the have the first round. Anything rolling around in your brain? Anything at all? Lay it out. But I'd have to ask you to keep it light. We've gotten some flack from from upstairs that I am I am I am I am the darkening on the doorstep, and I'm yeah, trying to true. stop. <laughs> so it's got to be light. No politics. Oh no, I'll I'll avoid that. Um. Nothing immediately comes to mind. Could be a TV show. Uh, I am behind on TV. Oh, actually, you know what? I don't know if people if if people have been keeping up with um, the uh, DC like Arrowverse shows on the sure. on um, the CW. I'm 100. percent What do you got? Arrow and Flash and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I I am a little bit behind. Um, I just caught today the episode of Legends of Tomorrow where they went to, uh, Hollywood in 1967. Right. That, and it was just, it was like basically where one of the character, like the, it had George Lucas as one of the characters in it and all of the like Star Wars, you know, I was just... It was fantastic. I was well, laughing yeah, the, out loud. Yeah, the, the, whole, the whole thing was was it that uh, two of the of the heroes of tomorrow uh, were were inspired to to excel in their respective fields by 
the various George Lucas movies, uh, either Star Wars or Indiana Jones. And when they altered time and, and so that he was no longer and, and going to become a director. Yes, yes, he was quitting directing. They actually, they actually stopped being professionals in their field. They, they've forgotten things that they should know. The the the, the uh, timeline was affected, and they, they were starting to feel it. And so they had to quickly get him back in the back in the directing game, or else, or else there were going to be two people down. So I, I thought that was pretty yeah. funny. You're right; that was good. But just all the all the little like like digs where they were looking at the altered timeline, and Lucas had gone on to win Best Insurance Salesman of Modesto in 1977 <laughs> and 1980 and 1983. It's, it's the detail that was there. Yeah, yeah, and and the the whole bit where they ended up having to go into the trash compactor at the dump to find the artifact, including lines exactly from the compactor scene in, in Star, Star Wars. Wars. Right. Yep. I mean, just all that sort of stuff was phenomenal. It wasn't great writing, but it was fun. It was yeah, it's, fun. It's, it's, it's the kind of fun that, like, clearly they are not taking, they are having a good time with it. And that's, you know, that, a nice break from the sometimes uh, overly, uh, overly dark and brooding um, arrow or the, uh, you know. What, Super what, light super light flash stuff like mo most of the time the flash is is the is the exact opposite of arrow i mean the arrow is dark and brooding and what what it means to kill where where, where the flash is all we're gonna make it don't worry about it except I got that this barry is the worst time traveler ever yes yes every time he time travels he he breaks his toys and he comes back to the present and everyone's screwed up good I'm job barry that, i'm gonna have to give that Damn series another another try because i i only watched like the first two episodes and which I, series is this you're talking about the the uh dc heroes of tomorrow legends, legends of tomorrow, tomorrow. The, the first season is a little rough the the writing in the first season is a little bit rough um the second season is a lot better the overarching villains they have are phenomenal um oh, good good because basically the 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 villains in the current season of Legends of Tomorrow are um Damian Dark so they got the guy back from the prior season of Arrow of course because they're time traveling they've gone back to before he died yeah Ollie killed him so but you've got the same actor back and so he was phenomenal in that role you've got John Barrowman back as Malcolm Merlin and doing phenomenal as always and then you've got um pre before he changed himself, you've, you've got some bizarre time echo of uh, Thawne Thon, right. running around as well, played by the actor, not um, Wells, the guy Tom, what's yeah. his name? Yeah, not by, not by the guy who played Wells, but by um, the guy who played Thawne in the episode where he traveled back in time to before the other thing. It's time traveling. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's all timey-wimey crap, but... Um, but what, what I really liked about it is that all of these guys, they're all failed and they all want their shot to change the universe. That, that, that's, that's why they're looking for the spear of destiny. They, they all either died or, or, or are basically living in a gutter and, yeah. and they're, they're all hope to change that circumstance. Well, um, Bob just mentioned in, in the chat, asked if Rip Hunter was gone. That was actually the setup for the Hollywood episode. Apparently, sort of at the beginning of the season, um, Rip scattered everybody through time and then dumped himself into the time matrix, which kind of rewrote who he was. And he was sent back to California in 1967 and doesn't realize he's Rip Hunter, but is a film student and is basically his student film is a 
sort of mashed up retelling of the first season of Legends of Tomorrow. Yes. And it's a hack job. And and George Lucas is his assistant or something, which is how that whole thing ties. Yeah, he's like a, a prop director or something like that. A prop master, yeah. Prop which master, is why he it, had right. the spear. But yeah, I mean the 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 interplay between um Malcolm Merlin and Damian Dark is just phenomenal because you've got two actors who are clearly having a great time, but just Yeah, they're they're both head head dogs, you know? And they have to work together and they and you you feel that friction all the time. And I love that. And then you had the the 1940s issue where they went back to the uh, Justice Society of America. Um, this it's 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 been a pretty good second season. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, the uh, series was pretty exciting to me uh, when it started out, but like like most people, I kind of fell off just because I kind of ran out of time. Well, well yeah, I'm I mean, I'm gonna give it another shot. Well, yeah, Rick. I mean, you 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 always you always bypass the first season of a show. I mean, have you tried to rewatch the Next Generation first season? <laughs> That's true. That is. True. Yeah, it's terrible. I, I it just like I comment in chat. Every Star Trek series, the first season's bad. Yeah. Like yeah, I stopped it, watching it, Voyager uh, three episodes in because I just could I couldn't take it. Like no, and I checked out, and it turned out that was actually a good series. Mm-hmm. After the first season. Uh, what about, what about you, Heathen Dog? What do you got? What do I got? You know what? I got nothing. I'm going to, I'm going to say nothing because every time I do, it, <laughs> everyone says it's dark. It's not. It's hopeful at the end. It's a dark tunnel. That light at the end of it is not a train. It's, it's daylight, baby. It's, it's a sunlight, but, but no one, no one thinks that they just, they just think it's dark. And so I'm, I'm nothing. Nothing. <laughs> well, I've been playing through my, uh, my old library of games. Uh, I've, I actually recently just went through Super Mario Brothers 3 for the NES, and it was that not... That holds up. It does, and it was not nearly as hard as I remember it, which has amazed me, because I remember that game being hard. I went through every level, and it was not that hard, but the game still holds up very well. It looks great. It plays great. Um, it is super fun to this day, and then I went through Super Mario Brothers Super Mario World on the Super NES, and it holds up great, too. Yeah. They they did some really good design for those for those classic era console games. Yeah, I mean, if you because it looks just the way that everything is timed is so sharp and so well. And then I went from playing this is going to be another Mario game. My daughters were watching me play Mario three, and they wanted me to play Mario Wii. Went to that, and it's just not to me as fun. It looks amazing, but. You, the the movement's totally different. The jumping paths are totally different. The enemies move differently. And it just has taken me a while to understand the new game because it doesn't move like the other ones did. Even through the Super NES, and they move the same. And so, ah, kind of annoyed by that. But I guess that's the modern style. The game moves a lot slower. So it just seems really weird to me. But Mario 3 is still a great game. Still love that game. Um, All right, Rick, what do you got, man? Well, on the topic of time travel, actually, um, and shut me up, slap, reach through the monitor and slap me in the face if I already talked about this, but uh, did I mention frequency before? Yes. You did. Oh, yes, you have. That's right. Oh, I did. I've been telling everyone. Talked about last I week. I can't, I can't keep track of who I told. Yeah. 
<laughs> are, are, you, are you talking about the movie or the or the series? The, the new, well, the new relatively series. new series. I mean, right. the first season's on Netflix, and right. uh, I finished it, and it's yeah. uh, it's good from beginning to end. I, I highly recommend it. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. The, I mean, the CW uh, has put out some quality genre shows. They they really have. Well, they're really taking some risks doing it too. So I give them full credit for that. I can't wait for iZombie to come back. That show is so good. Oh, that's so funny. I just started watching that last night. First episode. Oh, that show is phenomenal. I was surprised. It's really good. Yeah, that that's one, like, you talk about don't watch first. That show, like, it's a, it stumbles a little bit, but not as badly as some other shows in the first season. But it just, oh, man. I was hooked. First episode. It's very witty. So Yes. Uh, like, what kind of witty? Like, Gilmore Girls witty? Like I'm a zombie and also a pathologist, Wendy. Um, have you seen um, uh, like Veronica Mars? Uh, I saw a couple episodes. Okay, it's done by the same guy who did Veronica Mars, so it is very kind of like snappy dialogue. Not quite to say, um, oh, what's the name of the guy who did West Wing? Aaron Sorkin. Like not quite that snappy level of dialogue. Okay. Um, but the um you know but just very uh it's it's not quite it's it's like in the same kind of genre dialogue wise as like joss whedon kind of thing without being quite as twee yes i I, I will agree with that yes uh bob uh, in the chat gives big love for i zombie says it's awesome so i uh, got some got some good company there yeah yeah well, gentlemen, this sounds strange, but I think that might be it for the RNG today. That's great, uh, Josh Harrison. Thank you very much for coming on and uh, and and, and, and answering answering all non troll like questions. I love it. <laughs> I I had a good time both with the sort of our, our initial conversation and listening in and chiming in on the stuff. No, that was cool. Great, Kevin. Yeah, we loved having you on and. Uh, as things progress uh, with Earthon or any other system, if you ever want to come back on or if we want to have you on, we will cut. Well, please, it would be awesome to have you on again. Yeah, by all means. So I, I like things where I don't have to, like, I just need to show up. Like, I don't have to do any work. <laughs> you just show up. Just talk about stuff you already know. No research involved. You don't, you, don't, you don't need to have, like, the masked guys in the van next time. Just send me an email. Uh, that, that's so that was so much fun. I know, right? I mean, it's a hands-on approach. Look, I, I, I understand you had sunk a lot of money into that. That van cost us 50 bucks used. Yeah, yeah. The, tens, the guy, ten, like, literally tens of dollars. Tens of dollars. Yes, literally tens of dollars, because uh, apparently the guy, the guy who we borrowed the van from, he wasn't having a good day with his career, which I'm not going to get into because it's a family-friendly program. But, yeah, he, he was happy to give it to us for an hour. It was great. An hour, but but seriously, but no, seriously, I had a I had a good time, and uh, yeah, yeah. Like I said, uh, we in the Legion are big fans of Earthdawn and everything Fasting Games is doing right now, so we are very happy, and this was very fun. Yeah, I had a good time. All right, everyone, thank you all for listening, for tuning in, for for joining us in the Twitch chat, for everything going on that was popping today. Ah, so everyone, Elgarian, do you have any final words of wisdom? Yeah, I just wanted to say, as promised, I did not wear pants this entire episode. Oh, super, super, super. Great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thumbs up. 
I'm wearing pajama pants. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Mine that's have awesome. Superman logos on them. Mine, mine have walruses wearing um, like Santa hats. I actually like that. That's good. What about you, Heathen Dog? What do you got? I got Batman pants on. Final words of wisdom. Oh, final words of wisdom. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> Wear Batman pants. <laughs> Batman pants. That's my final words. No, no, no. Uh, uh, I hope everyone had had a great time. Uh, I, I always have a great time doing this, and I hope to do it for a long time in the future. Um, and anyone, anyone who uh, who liked this, who liked this, uh, this uh, 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 live stream, please uh, uh, be, become a follower on Twitch. If you like, like if you're subscribe. watching. Exactly. If you, if you follow, if you are uh, looking at us on YouTube, then please uh, subscribe because we, like, like Al said, we have hundreds of hours of gameplay content. Not, not just the podcast, which we have hundreds of hours of that too. But uh, yeah, we have lots of stuff coming out every week. Uh, come out and see it. You're not going to be disappointed. We have something for everyone. How about you, Josh? Any final words of wisdom? Um, if you have not checked out Earthdawn, you are uh, criminally insane. Well, yeah, you you are. Missing out. Yeah, you're missing out. You are depriving yourself, um, and and you really should check it out. Not just to you know throw maybe a little bit of money my way, because uh, that would be cool. But uh, throw, throw really... a lot of bit of enjoyment your way. Yes, that's what it is. Yes, absolutely. Earthon is a fantastic gaming world, and they are doing fantastic work at Fasted Games. And you would be insane not to take advantage of it right now. Yeah, either that or 1879 or you know any of our any of our other lines. They are all fantastic. Oh, I love 1879. Ah, oh, we should have talked about that more. Next time, next uh, time. Well, next time. Yeah. All right. So, as everyone, if you had a constructive comment or suggestions, you could drop by us at the multiple fonts you can find us on Facebook, our homepage leisure.tv, uh, YouTube channel. Check, give us comments there at Twitter at leisuremith, Twitch TV slash leisuremith. Check out our podcast on iTunes. Please download it. Give us a review. Five-star reviews help us out. I know it's pandering, but you know that, kids. Come on. Show them love. We love you. If you had a podcast, we'd vote for you. Uh, if you want to Legion of Myth gear, of course, you can find it on shop.spreadshirt.com slash Legion of Myth. And if you want to become a Patreon subscriber, like our favorite subscriber currently, Hicks206, thank you, sir. Uh, check us out at patreon.com slash Legion of Myth. And as always, in closing, remember, you have one life. Live it well. Live it nerdy, and have a great darn little novel.